0: Welcome to the SIAC podcast. I'm Natalie Pearson, and I'm joined by Lakshmi Pamunchak, an Indonesian novelist, poet, food writer, and journalist. She is well known for her works of poetry and fiction, including both short stories and novels. And she's also known as the author of the award-winning independent good food guide series called the Jakarta Good Food Guide. We are fortunate to have her visiting Australia where she will be launching her third novel, Fall Baby, here at the University of Sydney and appearing as keynote speaker at the Indonesia Council Open Conference at the Australian National University in Canberra. Lakshmi, welcome.
1: Hi, Natalie. It's lovely to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us. Could you start by telling us how you go about writing this big, ambitious Indonesian novel, The Umba or The Question of
1: Red, and how you approach that task? Well, there is your answer right there. I went about writing a big ambitious novel about Indonesia by writing so many books in between, <laughs> literally, <laughs> all 14 of them. <laughs> you see, because uh, writing Amber or The Question of Red was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Obviously, I had the first time novelist bug. I wanted it to be the novel in which I could cram in everything that needed to be said about the country in all its shades and nuances and complexities. I wanted the novel to travel. I wanted the world to know about Indonesia and our collective pain. But quite simply put, I didn't know how to write a novel because I never wrote one. Mm. So I stalled a lot, was extremely frustrated um, for a while and also intimidated by all the problems, both practical and ethical, that could possibly come from imagining, or one might say appropriating a history that wasn't mine personally. Of course, I didn't experience 1965 directly. I was born in late 71. So in the almost 10 years it took for me to finish the novel from 2004 to 2012. I published six or seven books, including two collections of poetry, a collection of short fictions on paintings. And there was also a philosophical treatise based on the Iliad, the Greek mythology. And then there was this big edition, probably my biggest, of the Jakarta Good Food Guide. This is a a tomb (laughs) of more than 600 pages of text and images and more than, I don't know, like 500 eating places. And uh, there were also the two translations of the work of um, the preeminent Indonesian poet and essayist, Gunan Muhammad. It was a book of poems and a book of aphorisms. But in some ways, these so-called distractions were necessary distractions, because at the end of each of these endeavors, they helped me grow as a writer and allowed me to think more deeply about the subject of my novel. The subject, needless to say, required the long look, and I needed to have grown up also in, in, in my life. I needed to have um, acquired more wisdom uh, in order to, to write the book. But what might have been the most welcome distraction was in the course of store I found poetry. And it was very important because this was late 2004, and four, and my daughter Nadia and I had just moved to Singapore, just the two of us, to start a new life. And somehow, something was lost in the in the uh, novel writing process. I I couldn't write. I couldn't master the right feelings or emotions. Somehow, my voice eluded me. I think it's something to do with not living in the vernacular. I might have been wrong, but that was how it felt at the time. I realized I was writing about Indonesia. It's an Indonesian story. But I had become so distant from certain details only found in in Jakarta. I mean, it's anything from the texture of fabrics, the the smell of rainy nights, the sounds of the morning where you know you listen to the slapping on gravel, you know punctuated by the sound of traffic, and these were very, very distinct Indonesian experiences. Even the howl of dogs and the, and the crow of roosters seemed to me particular to this one locality. And removed from them, I could not bring them to life. And so the novel quickly degenerated into some you know, rambling s- stream of consciousness <laughs> that threatened to become everything it tried not to be. Mm-hmm. So I started trying too hard to assert my indonationness, whatever that meant, and to imagine those experiences, rather to creatively, I might add, only to buckle under this feeling of being fake. So it was only after I abandoned a novel for about six months that I began to revisit certain phrases that I like or paragraph that seemed too valuable to not do anything with and set them to verse. Suddenly, some of them started to take on a life of its own as poems. And so did my journey in poetry started. And somehow poetry liberated me to be to be my own multiple selves. I was free of nationality. I was free of a, an agenda. It was a space where language could freely be and it was only after I found that voice I was able to go back slowly into my novel. Mm. So that was why it necessarily took that long. Well
0: it sounds like you put all that all those extra words to good use and one of the things I did notice is this issue of readers and writers. Writers have to be prolific readers in order to be prolific writers and this idea of reading
1: a lot. What do you read? Oh I read everything. Um, I mean I have been raised as a reader so growing up I was always surrounded by books. My father's family is one of the oldest publishing families in the country. My mother taught me to read when I was three years old and as the impulse to write is almost always fired by reading as you suggested I began to write short stories, journals, poems when I was six. I won my first national writing competition when I was eight and on and on it went. But I read everything, and from very early on, fiction, poetry, the classics, history, and because my family is a very politically-minded family, I've always been interested in politics, also in, in current affairs from a very early age. In college, I studied Asian studies and political science, and so I started contributing political commentaries and columns for Tempo News Magazine in 1994, after I graduated from Murdoch. One of my... Favorite writers, thinkers, and heroes, Susan Sontag, has always said that reading or the love of reading is what makes you dream of becoming a writer. And to write, uh, and I quote, is to practice with particular intensity and attentiveness the art of reading. And I believe that, you know, I used to train as a classical pianist, for instance, and the study of music requires the same love and intensity. And that's pretty much the way I've approached every subject. I've delved in ever since, whether it be in food or literature or art, performing arts, classical music, movies, I read up on them, then I write about them.
0: Earlier you said that writing is a way of translating, and I understood that to mean a way of translating your thoughts from, from your mind onto the paper. But we can also think about translation in terms of language, right? And you've been published in Indonesian, German, Dutch, and English, What language do you write in and how do you navigate the translation process?
1: I always like to think that I honour the first impulse. So whenever a story comes to me, that is what I write it in. And it has always been consistent with poetry. I've never written poetry in Indonesian except for four poems that I wrote sometime in 2011, I think, or 2012. I don't know why that is, maybe because I read more poetry in English. With my three novels now to date, I first wrote Amba or the Question of Red, my first novel in English. But it was such a, a difficult process, also because there's something always that is lost in the process of writing or rewriting a history that is so contextualized into another language. God knows how many versions of the novel I wrote and rewrote with wildly different beginnings and endings and different emphases on characters and character developments. It was only six or seven years into writing the novel and publishing six other works, as I already mentioned to you, in between. After I had a literary agent in New York help me through the process that I finally arrived at an architecture of the novel that I found most satisfying. And she told me, don't burden the narration with too much history, you will end up losing the plot or the central human story, the love story. And um, at that point, it didn't get any easier either because there was so much sense of jokes, types of dialogue, conversation, historical details, and, and even collective or cultural memories that needed to be done away was because they were too particular. And this was true of local touches and flavors that only resonated with an Indonesian audience, or at any rate, an audience familiar with Indonesian history. It was as if there was an unavoidable, I call it, or reduction, if you will, in translating or introducing a story into a different language, or a different mindscape, a different history. And then I realized, in a play, for instance, the audience is always in front of us, right, with their particular jokes and histories and problems and traditions, such that the story has to be presented in context to be better appreciated. Now, I asked myself how to do this in my particular case, how to tell a human story taking place on our soil, in Indonesian soil, to an audience who doesn't share our context, especially a story so large in, in scale. And the fact that I'm bilingual played a crucial role in this process too, I think. My love of the English language, I feel, often made me alienated from my own Indonesian context, mm. Is there's always the specter of a dual audience, you know, at the back of my mind that made me feel neither here nor there, and it was terribly unsettling. So it was, you know, in such a yeah, a quackmire, I suppose, that I thought, oh, maybe I need to write the novel in Indonesian first, so that I could better accommodate those particularities and share them with an Indonesian audience. So I was very lucky that in 2012, Gramedia, Pustaka Utama, has been my publisher for seven years now. They asked whether they could publish the novel in Indonesian, and I said, okay, I'm mm-hmm. going to give it a try. But you can imagine how difficult it was to write a new, a whole novel that you had written in English before into Indonesian, and not necessarily as a translation. And then um, afterwards, to have translated it back into <laughs> English,
0: so you actually had to go through the process of rewriting yes. the entire thing in yes. Indonesian,
1: yes. after struggling with yes. it for eight eight years.
0: Yes. And, the, and the and the
1: very very interesting thing about it is that I couldn't um, I couldn't translate it. I had to write it anew, mm-hmm. so these versions were very very different. And then to be able to translate it back into English uh, was easier, but certainly not in the time span that I had uh, because my Indonesian publisher had wanted the manuscript ready for the Frankfurt Book Fair at the time of, in 2013, so yeah, Gramedia published a limited edition of that English version that was very, that was very quickly done. But it was, it was very difficult. That was why when I started writing my second novel, Aruna dan Lidanya, which was translated beautifully by a colleague of yours, um, I believe, and a good friend, um, Tiffany Sal under the title The Bird Woman's Palette. I was very, very certain to write it in Indonesian and only for an Indonesian audience. I didn't um, think of having it translated to travel across borders or anything like that. It was a very, very easy process compared to the the first novel.
0: And is that because you didn't have that other audience in your mind when you were writing it? That made it easier? Yes.
1: I'm pretty sure it was.
0: Right, and, and yet it has been translated and it's found another audience. Yes. So very interesting. I guess my next question, which you have sort of already touched on, was about some of the challenges of writing in two or three different, or two different languages and how you surmount these challenges. But you've just said that you follow your first instinct, whichever language the idea comes to you in, I suppose. Yes.
1: There was a time, especially in the beginning, when I was struggling with these two languages during the writing of my first novel. I used to feel that because my facility with English demanded an English-speaking audience, it turned me into a kind of the double other, if you will, because to Indonesians, I was different because I wrote in English, and to the English-speaking world, I was different because I'm an Indonesian. So while Indonesians expected me to write about things Indonesian, whatever those things are, and even to an extent in Bahasa Indonesia, because, because I am, after all, an Indonesian speaking and writing person to represent us, the English-speaking world expected me to write about things Indonesian to reflect our difference to them. And the problem is I was neither adequate as us nor as them, uh, for in my Indonesian-ness I'm hardly of one root. I don't speak Javanese, for instance, or Minang, which is the language of the West Sumatranese. My writing isn't necessarily always about Indonesian affairs, and in my English-speaking ways I still lapse into Indonesian from time to time, and vice versa. And my constant travelling and living overseas have also made me so diverse and multi-layered. And so not the one thing I want to write about the world. So these have always been a constant problem uh, to me, which of my multiple selves to access each time.
0: And I've heard you interviewed elsewhere talking about the importance of making yourself the subject of your own story. Mm -hmm. Is that the way that you, you manage to navigate those many cultures and layers?
1: Yes, Otherwise, how could you accommodate these different consciousness, these different experiences? If you if you don't let go, right? If you don't allow yourself these um, dimensions of, of your writing to to help you in whichever way needed, whichever particular case uh, that I um, find myself in. Mm.
0: You just mentioned the Frankfurt Book Fair and. I'd like to turn to that now and and Indonesian writing and publishing in general which has been in the news a little bit lately both with the Frankfurt Book Fair and most recently with the London Book Fair in March of this year 2019 and in particular there's been quite a bit of heated discussion about the opportunities available to aspiring Indonesian authors related to a growing concern that Indonesian voices are being erased from Indonesian literature to what extent would you agree that international literature is being curated for the English-speaking world?
1: Book fairs mm. like the Frankfurt Book Fair and the London Book Fair are, of course, one-off platforms. That, like any big, splashy, one-off platforms need to be followed through and kept up after the events themselves are over. But there is no doubt these fairs can make a big impact. And I think we're doing better now. More authors are getting international attention and they are getting published. Though I'm on delicate ground here, being one of the fortunate authors who got to go to both fairs. But there's no denying at the end of the day that there's no list of no selection or no decision on who gets to go, whose works get promoted, who's deemed good enough to represent Indonesia in all our multifacetedness and diversity of voices and stories is free of bias. It is always contingent upon who's doing the selecting, their own tastes, subjectivity and interests, And I, for one, cannot argue against the general idea of there being power at play here, for they who have power get to decide. So this has been pretty much the case, I think, in the past four or five years since we've become much better represented in international contexts. But the bias uh, doesn't always come from within, of course. My biggest problem in my Career so far uh, with being categorized as Asian writer or an Indonesian writer or worse, an Indonesian women writer is the (laughs) inadequacy and narrowness of the categorizations themselves. They're so flawed, not just as concepts, but in the way they're positioned vis a vis the Anglo American mainstream or the West and the way they are framed and defined and presented in the West because they show. In our literature, whatever it is, Asian, South Asian, or Indonesian, this literature we are somehow lumped together into is simply not yet part of the Anglo American mainstream. And because of that, we are either not quite up to speed or on par, or if we do find an audience, it's an anomaly. If we're good, we are an exception to the rule. And for that reason, we're somehow always found just that tiny, tiny bit wanting. As for us being lumped together as Asian literature, that is just as bad, if not worse, as though there's anything that ties Malaysian literature and Korean literature, Burmese literature and Filipino literature, Indian literature and Japanese literature. Even when we speak of Indonesian literature, we're not speaking of one Indonesia. Contemporary Indonesian literature, as you know, as a whole, is not a monolithic literature, but a series of imaginative works by individuals, each with their own very, very particular histories and distinctive voices. And as such, it offers such a a marvelous array of insights into what it's meant to be human, or what we all hold in common. And it has to be remembered that Indonesia itself is an artificial construct, right? A 20th century modern invention that coupled together some 17,000 islands and 700 languages as Ben Anderson famously said, it is an imagined community. Therefore, no one Indonesian voice has more right to represent Indonesia than the other.
0: I'm not sure how many Indonesian authors are being published by Penguin, but you would have to be one of a a very few.
1: I I have been um, very privileged in that.
0: Well, you're in a very unique position as one of... Indonesia's best-known authors and and noting what you've just said about categorization and artificial constructs and acknowledging that What advice would you give to aspiring Indonesian authors? Do they need to write a story that can cross cultures and What are the implications for them if they start to dumb down these historical and cultural contexts just so that their book can be marketed globally?
1: No, I don't believe in dumbing down anything, uh, but it is very very important of course that the story travels, right? And at the end of the day, it's about craft and good storytelling techniques and very good translators. And that is probably one of the hardest challenges yet to surmount. We do have some very good translators, just not enough. That's one thing I always would advise other writers, do find yourself a good translator because it could make or break your novel.
0: You do have many professional interests and we've touched on a few of them. Writing fiction and poetry, you're also an art observer and that's very much at the, the forefront of Fall Baby. You've been a food critic and you've mentioned that you're also a former concert pianist. So what comes through here for me is a love of the creative, a love of pleasure and a love of the multiple ways of understanding a place and a person through these creative endeavours. So Lakshmi can you tell us what do literature and food have in common?
1: Well I'm a loner in essence and there is a solitary aspect to eating that goes hand in hand with writing like cooking. Writing is a a bringing together of elemental substances for and this is somebody I love to quote Jay Parini, who's a novelist and also a food writer bringing together of elemental substances for transmutation over a hot flame. I love that very much because, you know, since I travel so much for my work and I grew up as an only child, which means I very much need my own space, I've come to love writing in cafes and, and restaurants um, because they, they do connect us through the sheer white noise that is a human web, but at the same time, they also center or anchor us in our aloneness. I loved this so much. I made a, a living out of it. Was that uh, ridiculous? Otherwise, tomb that I churn out one year after the next in the two thousands, the early two thousands. You're to referring Jakarta Good Food Guide, right? Yeah. But also, what I've come to realize uh, during the years I've written about food is that writing about food is often one of the best ways of writing about things other than food, <laughs> uh, because it conceals and codifies all manner of human needs, love, desire disappointments, resentments. It could be a window as well to history, to religion, politics, people, and places. And it multiplies us in so many directions and it borrows from life. And food always tells a bigger story. Food is never just about food when one digs deeply enough. And I think this is just pretty much the way um, I've dealt with everything else that is important in my life, um, like music, for instance, and/or art, because they all their languages have greatly enriched my vocabulary. With music, for instance, they provide the structures of sound and, 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 and rhythm and musicality that I always seek in my poetry. My food writing also benefits it's kind of a cross-disciplinary uh, from my love of paintings and visual art, and and from my love and familiarity with the performing arts. in, in, in turn, the The sensory perceptions most at work when you're a professional food taster also greatly enhance your poetic expression too. Your vocabulary, your expression, you talk about rhythm, you talk about color, you talk about texture, you talk about taste. So these are different dimensions to your processing of the world. But if there's one thing to link all these different fields and occupations, at the end of the day, I still think it is the blood and toil and sweat and passion for language. It is the act of writing itself, and to an extent of reading books and reading the world in different ways, because they are two sides of the same coin. And there is no greater joy than to be able to find articulation, whatever the initial stimulus is, in words and in bringing together everything he or she knows through this one prism.
0: I now have a vision of you in a restaurant somewhere, reading or writing and enjoying something delicious, being inspired and and inspiring in turn. So could you give us a recommendation
1: for a restaurant in Jakarta for somebody who's never been there before? Right, this is the worst question uh, (laughs) of all because you don't get to write a big book like that uh, to tell you there's only one restaurant (laughs) to go to in all of Indonesia, or in Jakarta for that matter, but it depends on what feeling you're seeking, right? And, and what mm. cuisines, because been talking about Indonesian cuisine, we're talking about an array of cuisines. I love, mm-hmm. for instance, two old Chinese restaurants in the bowels of Kota, the old part of uh, Chinatown. One is called Sanur, and the other is Wong Fuki. It's a, literally like a hole in the wall that has been there for four or five generations now, serving kek uh, food, haka. And it's just so nice, the recipes have been there for centuries, and the family who runs it just very, very lovely, and they know everybody by name, and the, and the food just remains gorgeous throughout time. And if there's a, a kind of much more upscale Indonesian um, restaurant to take people to, I would always go to Sri Burasa. It is not strictly an Indonesian restaurant. It is more Peranakan, which is um, Chinese, assimilated with local food, but it is always constantly very, very good. Constant burst of flavours and textures and whatnot. Beautiful, beautiful cooking. Yeah, so they're the three places that I would recommend. Thank you for sharing those.
0: You've had me so interested with your beautiful reflections on writing and now you've also got my tummy grumbling with all these (laughs) delicious foods in Jakarta. That was such a generous interview. Thank you. And, I mean, there's just so much to think about and reflect on I'm actually looking forward to going back and listening to this podcast again so I can really hear what you've been telling us. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today and best of luck. We have a very busy schedule, a masterclass this afternoon, a reading and a book launch this evening for Fall Baby and then you're off to Canberra to give the keynote at the ICOC. So we wish you all the best and thank you for visiting thank us. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.